Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week's topic of discussion is one of my picks for week four, I believe, of Spooktober. We are going to be discussing Void by Ranmaru Zarya. Uh, This originally came out in Japan in 2016 via BL Magazines from Libre Publishing. It was then brought into English in 2017 from Sublime Manga. This is specifically a digital-only release in English, so you won't be able to get Tankuban of it, but you can go to Sublime's site directly, or I'm sure plenty of other stores will have just like the PDF version available to buy on their storefronts as well. In terms of localization crediting, we have Christina Dashiel for translation and touch-up art and lettering attributed to Carl Vansdefout. I apologize for probably not getting your name right. And yeah, this is a single volume story. It is the second BL we've ever covered. We haven't discussed any since Fangs. And I've been wanting to do more BL. I've been wanting to do more romance. And this is a series that I just think about every so often. I think for reasons that will become apparent as we discuss it for why this is memorable. But my main concern when I was thinking about if I would pick this for the podcast was me going, am I throwing you into the deep end of the pool too quickly? (laughs) How do you feel? So I am definitely going to be the cranky one this episode. Actually, thinking about it, because Fangs has some elements of this as well. Does almost every BL manga have, like, questions of consent? Is that a, like, really common running theme, or is it just the two you've managed to pick? I'm not going to say almost every, but it's definitely, I would say, a running theme that's not uncommon across either BL or, I would say, shoujo or just romance comics in general. I wouldn't say, like, you know literally all the time and you know like this i think was certainly a much more extreme version of it than fangs was yes but it is a i feel like i'm being mean to fangs comparing them actually but it was an element of fangs that i pulled out which i think is just naturally part of the vampire genre in that case and then there's this which goes much further yeah it is definitely something that occurs frequently in the genre and was part of why it took me a while to get into the genre. Like when I was younger, I largely steered clear of most BL just because of how prevalent it was, which I think over the years, there's been like more diversification of, I suppose what BL is being published, but also just how much BL is being published and that I've been able to get more into the genre by way of there just being more of it, more variety, to include more of it that doesn't fall into these pitfalls or tropes, which, you know, I'm not going to say that I never read or never enjoy anything that is problematic for various ways, but I think even by BL standards, I think this is a fairly extreme case, and as we get more to the sexual assault stuff, we'll talk more about it, which I should go ahead and just say... Trigger warning on that one. 
Yeah, trigger warning for discussions of sexual assault and rape. Um, I suppose also, if you want to round it off, just like, you know, emotional abuse, general relationship abuse, just abuse in general. And as always, spoiler warning, because we will be discussing the story in full as always in order to actually analyze and share our thoughts on everything. But I guess just to start at the beginning of the story and not fully jump ahead, we'll talk more about the assault aspect of the story once we get a bit further. At the start before chapter one and before most of the chapters throughout the rest of the book, we are treated to slightly shifting artwork of a birdcage, which in this case, it is an empty birdcage with no bird in it. This imagery is going to change a bit throughout, thematically as the plot progresses, and it's a very stark white birdcage against a black background. And the doors open on the birdcage, which I would say is important thematically. Yes, thank you for noting that. In general, I think Ron Rosaria's art, it feels very stark to me. I guess I'm curious what words you would choose or would come to mind for you. Like, there's definitely always, in my opinion, like, a lot of sharp contrast between, like, the black inks and the white of the backgrounds. Yeah, there's not much in the way of the gray tones. It is, things are usually, like, black or white. There's, like, the mangas we've read this, frequently they've had, like, some mid-tones in there. This has less than those. Beyond that, to me, it kind of reads as sort of very normal manga art. I didn't see anything particularly stood out beyond that to me. I like the way the rain's visualized. I don't think it's bad art. I think it's fine. Yeah. I like Ron Rosaria's art a lot. I am a fan of hers in general, to include other works beyond this one. But, yeah, what you said is very true. There's not a lot of grayscale here. Most mid-tones will be like the occasional background detail or like some slight shading, but it is primarily just black-white contrast. You mentioned Lorraine. Uh, the first scene opens up with a funeral procession. We get this downpour as we watch a group of men carrying a casket and we get a shot of a man who isn't actually attending the funeral, but is watching from, like, outside the edge of the cemetery as he sort of is watching the event, but is very pointedly keeping his distance from the rest of the mourners and isn't taking part in the ceremony itself. And it's just a very oppressive environment with... The harsh rain falling down, everything we mentioned about how stark the black on white is of just like in this case, the black suits, the black shadows on the coffin, um, the graves and grave markers throughout the cemetery are pretty much entirely in black with no gradients of shading to them. And it's just like a very moody intro to the beginning but it also only lasts all of three pages before we then move forward an unspecified amount of time. Seven years, I think, is what it's established to be. Yeah, it'll establish later that it's seven years, but at this point it's just a cut. I actually thought it was the next day for, like, the first third of the book. 
Yeah, I don't remember. I think it takes its time, sort of Give dropping all the details. Yeah, I I I fought back, and I was like, oh wait, that funeral was okay. Now I get it. Yeah, it sort of takes its time filling in gaps where like it leaves some gems of information pretty early on, but it just keeps adding more and more context as the story builds. But flash forward past the cemetery scene and we see these men lifting a long rectangular box into this man's home. It's very coffiny. It's very much mirroring the artwork of the procession earlier. It's just reversed. Yeah, absolutely. It is specifically a box that is long enough to, I guess, just house a human body. It is a coffin in all but name. You can put a people in it. You can put a people in it. And two characters that we're going to meet here are our protagonist is named Maki. He is one of two main characters, and I think he is, of the two, the most viewpoint character. He used to work for an organization known as the Humanoid Rehabilitation Bureau. Humanoid here referring to a type of android. We'll get to a bit more details on that in a moment. This series essentially is set like an indeterminate amount of time in the future, enough time for androids to be, I suppose, more scientifically advanced in production, but also to be more commercially available for consumers to purchase, you know, as opposed to just being like scientific oddities and technological advancement, I suppose. They have like sentience. At the very least, I would argue that the one we see in this demonstrates a great deal of sentience. So, like, technologically wise, at least in terms of the robots were on, like, a Blade Runner level, they feel very Blade Runner in that there's, like, definitely a biology aspect to the design as well. Like, it's not, like, rubber over a metal frame. I know you haven't seen Blade Runner, but for the listeners, also, watch Blade Runner. Yeah, it's, like, definitely time has passed to have the sort of technological advancement, but it's not the sort of series where... This is future sci-fi, and it looks like it. The cars don't fly. Yeah, the cars don't fly. The architecture all looks like it could just, you know, fit in with contemporary times. Even people's fashions, you know, it all looks like it could fit in with, I guess, just modern times, as in modern what we're living in. I think the android stuff is sort of the only stuff that immediately screams future, And I'll get more into that in a bit and how I think that works of sort of sharpening the contrast of some stuff. But yeah, as I said, we have Maki and then we meet Rowan, who still works for the Rehabilitation Bureau. And he is urging these movers, these delivery workers to keep on bringing the box inside of Maki's home as Maki is protesting because he's like gotten some indication that Rowan's going to be bringing him this delivery and he wants no part of it. But Rowan just does it anyway for reasons that we'll get into more later and we talk about what this delivery is and who it is. But essentially, as part of their work with the Burrow, Rowan, and in the past, Maki, would essentially, I guess, it would be... 
Yeah, Rehome, it's like a human rights organization, but for androids as opposed to humans. Um, I guess from this point, I'll try to specifically use the word uh, humanoid, as that's like the term that the manga itself uses. And they like investigate companies that do shady illegal things with regards to humanoids of like illegal production of them, illegal selling. We get the sense that there are some types of humanoid production that are legal and some that are illegal. And the type that Rowan is having delivered to Maki's house because the lid gets lifted and it is a humanoid here laying in the box. And I'll just go ahead and quote Rowan for a moment. And I guess before I do that, they're going to say this kid, this is clearly a grown adult in body. So it's not kid literal as in child. He looks like a young adult, like probably like 20s. But just to establish clarity before I read it, but this kid was stored in their lab, ready to ship. His name is Arata Mizumori. He's a pet type for male use. Part of his look and memories were copied from an existing human. We then get like a dot 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 exclamation point of Maki being surprised and... Rowan then resumes, Exactly. As you're already aware, humanoids are artificial life forms, and one design is the pet type, specifically a humanoid that's been illegally manufactured to specialize in sex. And lately there's been an uptick in the making and selling of this type, with appearance, memory, and personality inputs that don't use the standard general purpose data but rather the illegally purchased genetic information and memories from existing individuals. I will admit, to a degree, that me picking this story for Spooky Month was me just wanting to talk about the story and then just making an argument to twist why it fits, because it's not, like, labeled or marketed as a horror story. It's pretty horrific. Yeah, like, this part right here, I think some of the concepts in this manga are among the most terrifying things we've talked about all month. But, yeah. I think this is the most disturbing thing, at least to me, that we've read. I'm not sure whether it thinks it's the most disturbing thing that we've read, which is part of why I say that. Yeah. This is a manga that I think is inconsistent in how well or how directly it addresses some of the philosophical questions that it poses. And then also just the issues we've already brought up of abuse and specifically sexual abuse. But essentially, we are 11 pages into the PDF and this is just such a horrifying concept of, you know, like, you can do various things conceptually with androids and stories. But this, I think, immediately makes clear that we're going to be reading a story that has to do with consent and sentience and relationships and that's immediately established that this is specifically a sex android and the most disturbing part beyond even just sex android is this is a sex android that has been modeled after an existing person which may be the creepiest fucking thought that I've ever had to entertain in my life like that is the most just least thing that you would ever want to happen to you in death yeah i don't know it's just fucking horrifying 
And as we get this speech that sort of gives us just this exposition right up front that I just quoted some from, it's specifically on a splash page depicting the humanoid in the box that he came in that, as you noted, you know, essentially a coffin. It's even got padding on the inside. It's very coffiny. It just doesn't have the rounded edges. Yeah. And it's just the shot of this humanoid in the coffin-esque box. He is completely naked, and I think the horror of the concepts is elevated by the degree to which this really looks like a cadaver shot. Both in the coffin-esque presentation of the box that we've noted, and also the way that this body is presented and how it's drawn, I think is notably different from how nudity is going to be portrayed throughout the rest of the story, in that this shot of his naked body, the way it's presented, you know, it doesn't give the impression that this is meant to titillate. He looks very stiff, you know, he looks... I guess just the obvious word, dead. Um, not in a like decomposing sense, but just looks utterly lifeless, I suppose, as opposed to dead. He's in sleep mode. Yeah, and we've established this is a sex android. There's going to be sex throughout this, so I'm just going to have to make some frank sexual comments throughout because that's just a part of this. But even like the way that his genitalia are drawn in this page is significantly different from the way it will be later, and that this is simply, you know, it's not porny, it's not hyper-detailed. It's very Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, like... In Watchmen. Yeah, like, we see, like, the outline of a ball sack, but that's about it. And... It's like Dave Gibbons drawing three lines, just so you know that this man is naked. But that's kind of it. Yeah, it's a step above Barbie doll nudity, and that there's a depiction of a genital, but there's not like, there's not a detailed, fully lined depiction of a penis. And after all of that, it is also noted by Rowan, quote, This guy's imprint function hasn't been engaged yet, uh, Maki asks. Imprint function? And Rowan explains, That's right, like how a duckling will imprint on the first creature it sees thinking it's the parent. The first human this kid sees will be the one he depends on, body and soul. So, my first question, because when I when I read this, I didn't realize that Maki used to also work for this organization, but how the fuck doesn't he know this, given what his job used to be? They do, like, a hand-wavy bit of dialogue of being like, things have changed since when you were with us. This is, like, the most as-you-know, as-you-know, that I have seen in a while. Yeah, like... As you know, basic concepts our entire society is kind of built around because everyone has a thing like this. As you know, the absolute basics of the scientific field that you were a professional in, it is absolutely like exposition dialogue. There's no reason that these characters should be having this conversation. I know you hate text pages, but I almost feel like you sh they should have just opened this with a text page explaining the basics of the world. So then the story wouldn't have to stop to explain it. Yeah, or even not even necessarily that. They could have just, oh, you know. Oh, he's imprinting on you. And then we know what imprinting means. Yeah, like I think you could have either spaced out or just altered the way the information was conveyed. As is, I don't hate it because 
we need to know this. Yeah, and I think, I don't know if you agree, but... Pers- I just would have changed what his job was. I don't think that his job is relevant to the story. I think that's a good note, honestly. That would be an easy way, because there's not really a whole lot of need... For him to have used to work at the same place where his brother works, it could be that he has a lot less experience in these things than his brother, but it's established he has the same, if not more. Yeah. On a level, I do appreciate just sort of getting all of the basic information out the way they do so that we can just progress with thinking about it thematically. So I can appreciate that aspect of it. And I don't know if you agree or not, but for me personally, I think it gets better about this sort of explanation as it goes on. Like, I don't think the rest of the exposition is as ham-fisted. Yeah, no, it's just like a weird note because, again, I'm going back into this having finished it now going hang on he worked there how does he know these things that seem very basic but yeah yeah it's like doesn't strike you on a first read but then you finish and you go back and you're like wait it's like feels as if written without being like oh wait you are gonna go back this doesn't make sense i also want to note the specific language used to describe the imprinting where we get a little claremont moment body and soul We do get a nice Claremont moment. This is also a hyper-specific type of sex thing. Very Claremont. But the comparison to a duckling imprinting, I think, struck me on two levels thematically. The first being that a duckling, this is going to be an obvious statement, but, you know, a duckling is natural, organic life. You know, it's not artificial intelligence. It's not something that is programmed. So I think the choice to describe this inherently, like, human-designed process by, like, making it analogous to a natural phenomenon, I think is an interesting choice. And that it sort of immediately makes my mind go. But he's not a duckling. You know, he's not a baby People have intentionally designed it this way. So I think that sort of immediate contrast is kind of cool. But it also brings the immediate relationship comparison of a parent and a child, which... The dependency, I think, is very relevant to what we get later. Yeah. As I said when I, like, described his body, the humanoid who has not been named yet, but in a few pages I'll just go ahead and say is named Arata errata is you know adults in body and presentation and very childlike in the way he behaves yeah it's like childlike but i'm not sure how to really entirely describe say like his level of maturity or intellect because it's established that this is not him coming online for the first time it will be revealed later that he you know, had other memories and, like, has memories of, like, growing up to this point. And they're, like, programmed ones, and most of his memories aren't real. But it's intellectually, to some degree, as if he has grown up through a life. But then he also will have sort of childhood wonderment and attachment to Maki. And there's, I guess, just certain degrees of thought raised of just, like, how much of this is differing what does maturity look like in an android and a humanoid as opposed to like a human who grows up in the real way that people do 
and how much of it is like, oh, he just acts this way because of this imprinting function. And also, isn't that kind of a fucked up thing to have at all? Well, so the thing that's fucked up about it to me is that even though he is a robot designed for sex, a humanoid, he does other things. That's the thing. I'm like, so he's sentient. So you have intentionally designed a sentient being who has desire to do things other than the thing you've programmed him to do, but he is forced to do this thing that he may not necessarily want to do, but he can't even tell for sure because of the way that you have structured this thing's brain intentionally. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a fuck machine. I think there's something wrong with taking a sentient, like, a thing that has actual desires, at least so far as anyone could possibly tell, like... I, I very generally very firmly come down on the if you can't tell if it's sentient or not, it's just fucking sentient. Yeah. And even with regards to desires too, I think part of what makes it even murkier is the question of I guess just how to navigate and talk about the humanoids' desires when it's sort of unclear where does desire born out of programming stop and start versus desire that is wholly i guess just more naturally occurring or a matter of sentience and of course you can't actually like you know i guess define or separate out feelings or behaviors or desires that way because that's simply not how cognition works which makes it all the more complicated of like oh when maki or rather oh when arata you know states his desires for maki in various ways you know romantic sexual duckling following its mother at what point do we consider these you know like independent thoughts and he definitely like acts mature and sentient enough that like i also read him as sentient and i fully think that like the story absolutely presents him as sentient and that we're meant to perceive him as sentient but how do we sort of reconcile and deal with the uncomfortable searching for the word, just like the uncomfortable messiness, for lack of a better word, between he is sentient, but also these programs, but also these lusts and these desires are programmed. And how much does his agency mean or how can we accurately talk about it when we also know that while he is a sentient being, he is in another sense an object that has been created for pleasure for other people. Yeah. I will say the comic gives us a very specific way to talk about it, which is the imprinting. And there's a bit later where we're going to see the imprinting maybe, and I am going to say maybe because I actually am not entirely sure, get cancelled, which is at the very least I think supposed to clear the deck of a lot of those thorny questions and now we have an independent being who can make choices but even then there's still a lot of very weird and disturbing power dynamics going but let's actually get a little further let's get into a bit more of the meat of the story like in the actual plot yeah i guess to get back to where we are in the story and not jump ahead quite yet there's some really haunting pages throughout in general, but I think the shots of Arata waking up and then imprinting on Maki are quite 
they're just arresting one page in particular where, oh, I suppose before I describe the art, I do need to note we get one more little bit of exposition feeding from Rowan, who says, Remember how I mentioned that an existing human's data had been used on this kid? That person's name was Rin Amamiya, your permafrost. And at this point in the story, we don't know yet who Rin is. We just know that that name must mean something to Maki. But we then get this really arresting page of four panels where the top panel is Arata the Humanoid looking at Maki with this really wide-eyed, sort of gentle, coming awake, taking in his environment because he literally just woke up, look on his face. Panel two is juxtaposing Arata's face with a very similar but slightly different second face sort of as like a vision of what it's mostly the hair that's changed yeah of like maki seeing this other man in and that's just that's ren yeah that's spoiling ren. the whole thing well i mean it's it's obvious in context yeah. and then we get the third panel is just like a close-up shot on maki's shocked eyes and then the first wards that Arata ever says to Maki are, I'm sorry, in the shot of him like starting to stand up in the box. And Rowan then says, imprinting is complete. And Rowan should be fired, by the way. Hot take. Yeah, I'm gonna wait to jump in till more is revealed plot wise about Rowan, but yeah. And essentially, what does become clear early on, though, is that Rin is Maki's ex, and Rowan, as the head of this rehabilitation bureau, for some reason, has fucking decided, oh, this humanoid that's modeled after your dead ex? That's I'm... programmed for sex. That's programmed for sex? Here, it's a birthday present for you. My job is to, like, find nice, great homes or, you know, just, like, find general safe placement for humanoids. What if I gave this humanoid to you? Just, you know, don't you want an android that looks like your dead ex and is specifically a sex android? Don't you want a sex doll that just looks like your ex? As I said, Rowan should be fired. Rowan should be killed. It's... It's a lot, just for as much as messy about it and as much as, you know, we've talked about already and we'll get to, it's the sheer, I guess, just boldness and thought-provokingness of just, like, this horror that isn't even entirely presented as horror that always makes me think about this comic. This is the horrors of an uncaring bureaucracy run by maniacs who I guess have no kind of oversight committee. Yeah, Maki continues to fight it a little bit. He's just like, why are you pushing this off on me? This is incredibly fucked up, Rowan. It sure the fuck is. And I'll also note, to make clear, it's established that while Arata is physically modeled after Rin, he's not entirely mentally modeled after him. He has some memories and, I guess, general brain whatever that are modeled on Rin. 
but he also has some inputs from the earlier mentioned general purpose data. I guess just like collated, non-person specific AI tech. And so he is mentally a mix of the X, but also, you know, decidedly isn't just the X reincarnated or as a robot. He is back to life as a sex robot. Yeah, like this is a new distinct entity. Yeah, like a unique consciousness that isn't just someone else. It's very, depending on your version of Vision, Wonder Man in Vision or Jarvis in Vision. Yeah. The, yeah. the brain padding basing, like this is an evolution of this, but not the same person. Yeah. Exactly, yes. And essentially after the quote-unquote gift giving is done, we're going to get a lot of representations of the duckling idea that was raised earlier of just scenes of Maki saying things like, I need to go grab some stuff. Wait here for me. And then we'll get panels of Arata following after him regardless. Very much just calling the image of a baby bird following its parent. This is um, not a thing that feels like it should lead to sex considering how much we're talking about this. Is It, it kind of feels like he's a child following a parent. Yeah, yeah, one might say this is fucked up. There's, even by the end, there's nothing healthy in this book. It's, yeah, no. I think the ending is supposed to be happy, and I'm like, this is nightmarish, but okay. Truly, it's like, the story is clearly aware that there are some bad things happening, but the actual presentation and final resolution is as if it doesn't recognize all of the bad things or all of the reasons why they're bad, and so we still end up in a different bad place. But... We get a lot throughout of Maki talking to himself for having memories of Rin. And I'll go ahead and spoil some more stuff that's established later too, just to be able to dive fully into just like the whole character dynamic. Rin was in love with Maki's older brother, who was straight and married and therefore unattainable. And so Rin used... Maki essentially as a replacement or like a substitute object of affection and so that sort of shadow hung over their whole relationship prior to Ren's death. It is Ren's funeral who we see at the very beginning of the story that takes place seven years before the main events. So not only does Rowan show up like hey here's a sex robot of your ex it's very much like you've had years to try and cope what if I stir that shit right back up? Because it's specifically your dead ex. But essentially, Maki has a lot of resentments and... Yeah, we don't see enough of the relationship with Ren for me to call it emotionally abusive, but I think that there is a vibe that it was emotionally abusive. There was a lack of trust in the relationship at the very least. Yeah, like, it became clear. I don't think at the very beginning of the relationship, but later, like, once they had already become... A couple, Maki then realized what was happening with the sort of brotherly substitution and that clouded his feelings where he still had feelings for Ren, but the complications arose and gave rise to anger and more twisted feelings. And essentially, in the way that Ren used Maki as a substitution for the man that he really wanted... Maki then is going to use Arata as a substitute f- 
figure for Rin in a cycle of abuse, wherein everyone stands in for someone who they are not to be used as an object to be abused and take out negative emotions upon. And specifically, I guess we can go ahead and dive into specifically in Maki and Arata's case. Arata, because he is imprinted on Maki, says a lot of things to the extent of, please don't get rid of me. I'll do anything to stay with you, you know, because of the duckling-esque imprinting. And, and another thing is he calls him Mr. Maki. It's not Maki. It's always Mr. Maki. He's speaking from the point of view of someone who is subservient, which ties into my feelings about the ending. Yeah, I think that's a good note to bring up. Thank you. Yeah, like, even in the way they talk to each other, this is not going to be, like, a relationship of equals. There is always the sense of Arata as owned or as lesser and subservient, and Arata is very aware of that, but doesn't want to be gotten rid of, so he'll beg to be allowed to stay, and Maki will essentially go, so you would do anything, huh? And then sort of uses that as his quote-unquote justification isn't actually justification, but uses that as a frame through which he... Self-justifies. Yeah, and like how he like describes it to Arata, he then is going to sexually assault and rape Arata, and these first encounters are very much pushed upon Arata, and I think the story's handling of sex gets, like, it starts murky, but gets all the more murky as it goes on, because there's not just the consent issues of, you know, of just the standard issues with rape, of just cut and simple non-consent, but then also everything we've talked about with, there's this power dynamic on so many levels of subservient. There is the human versus the humanoid. There's the added emotional abuse baggage of the X replacement sort of thing. And as we progress, it'll do a sort of thing where, and this is something that's common in BL that have this sort of trope, where consent will go from entirely like non-consent to more dubious consent and that, like, a lot of the language will be, like, language that if this was taking it seriously would just be clearly used for rape. But the presentation won't always acknowledge it as being rape or the way that characters talk about it will sort of change mid-act. Or I believe in this book specifically there's a scene where Arata's use of the word no, which, you know obviously here carrying the weight of no I don't want to do this will then like change mid-act to being like no I just don't want it like this I want you to make love to me and this sort of I don't want to say blurring of lines just the way that the manga presents the sex and rape it doesn't always feel like the manga itself is considering these acts rape even though they can't be anything but that the sequences earlier in the book are drawn the exact same way, I would say, in a lot of the ways that it's presented, as the scene at the end that is supposed to be a consensual sexual encounter. In both cases, they feel like they're meant to titillate. 
which is the thing I like least about this. I think that the story is interesting, and I think the fact that we have quite a large number of pages of us having to see some extremely graphic depictions of rape repeatedly, instead of enough information for us to understand what is happening, and then maybe that page time could be devoted to engaging with the character of Arata better, because, like, I don't know anything about Arata, except for the three things that you find out about Arata. Arata likes nature, Maki, for some unknowable reason, and, uh, is, is friendly? Nice. But how much of that is programming, especially on those later two? Not a damn clue. The viewpoint is entirely from the viewpoint of the abuser. Yeah, which plays into my complicated feelings about the story in that there is so much about the story that I find fascinating, but the framing is not that that one would want or find in a story that is entirely taking serious subject of rape or abuse and... Yeah, like, the way that the rape is drawn is incredibly similar to how the later sex scenes are drawn in terms of just, like, you know, the positioning of bodies, the focus on certain organs or moments in the act. It very much reads like it is meant to be titillating. It is not, because it is a rape scene, and it is disturbing, and I think a version of the story that better Arata's viewpoint in it yeah that had Arata's viewpoint and or that at least took this aspect of the plot more seriously I think would have handled those scenes very differently definitely been less erotically charged in its intent probably I think most people's sensibility would be to uh cut to black fade away don't explicitly depict most of it I think would be you know most people's sensibility in terms of how we generally think about depicting rape sensitively yeah I, I think at the very least a lot less of it again I think that you could spend that time getting into Arata's head but that's like the thing that I came away from this is I wish I had some of his perspective because I don't understand decisions that he makes and I don't feel like I know him really at all but I spent a lot of time with Maki, who I despise. Yeah. Before the ending, I'll just give sort of a general overview of what happens before the end throughout. A lot of the middle chapters are very much just relationship progression of day-to-day -day life between Maki and Arata, wherein they live together. Um, Maki also is like a man of some wealth, at least enough to have like a housekeeper who does a lot of chores and cooking. Calls him master. Yeah. And this housekeeper essentially is trying to help make Arata happier and like lets him help out around the house. Keeps telling Maki to spend more time with him because Arata wants to see him. And it's like she's presented, I think, to be a kind, helpful figure. I think the way that I would actually look at her isn't necessarily that way, because, like, being nice to Arata, great. Encouraging Maki to spend time with him? No, actually. Well, Keep she, that man away. Does she know, is my question, does she know how deeply fucked up it is? Because she's not there 
for any of the stuff that, like, from her perspective, like, even if she knows that he's the robot, well, the robot wants to spend time with him, what is she, what, what? I suppose you're right, actually, that is a good point. Um, I don't think we ever get any indication that she, she... knows about the sex aspect. Yeah, yeah, I don't think she knows that Maki is raping him. In that case, she is a trying-to-be-sweet, helpful lady, but... They can't get rid of him, he's imprinted. It will just destroy his mental state. That's why I say that, you know, Rowan should be fired. Yeah, specifically, again, just like, he gets imprinted on Maki, which is not something Maki consents to have happen, like it happens before he even knows what's happening. So, terrible things all around. There's another version of this where the imprinting happens and Maki is a sane person who doesn't use that as an opportunity to repeatedly rape someone who looks like his ex. And instead, maybe you could do an awkward romance where he has to spend time with this robot because otherwise this robot will lose it or whatever the end result is. And you could do something that's slower and... But it, it, it by the end of the first part, you're already dealing with... Yeah. Yeah. The middle portion is largely the two spending time together with Arata doing chores around the house, like watering plants and cooking food, and just generally trying to be helpful because he knows that his ability to stay living there is intrinsic on him being useful. Which, again, power dynamic, subservience, not a healthy base for a relationship, but is what he has been programmed to want. And there's just, like, a sense of, like, oh, Maki thinks he's getting to know Arata more through all of this time. And you mentioned earlier that Arata loves nature. He also, like, specifically loves birds. And we get this whole thing of him wanting to build a birdhouse. And what this makes Maki think of is he goes, oh, we don't have to do that. Like, I think I have a birdcage uh, somewhere in a shed or something. To which Arata replies that he doesn't want to keep a creature trapped. He just wants the bird to have the ability to come and go as it pleases. Which, you know, obvious parallels between Arata and the bird. Frankly, that feels pointed. Yeah, it's like, it does on, like, the story and the narrative's part, but it's, like, clear that Arata doesn't mean that that way. Arata isn't aware of the comparison that he's making between himself and the bird, no, but... Because he's so imprinted on Maki, and so intrinsically obsessed with him and dependent on him, he doesn't have the ability to step back and really analyze or understand why their relationship isn't healthy. You know, it's a very parental child duck duckling in that way, where he just simply doesn't have the frame of reference to understand what's happening to him. And if something goes wrong, he thinks it's his fault. Which it, like, never is. Yeah, Arata is entirely a victim in this story. Even in the ending, which I think is trying to give him more agency, or thinks that it is, but does not. And... Throughout the scenes, such as, for example, like when he wants to build the birdhouse, we get quote-unquote bonding of like, Maki helps Arata build the birdhouse. He starts to do things to help give Arata a bit more independence. 
such as helping him get like a bicycle to travel on his own, do a bunch of little tasks that really feel, again, like a parent teaching their child, like, okay, you're gonna go do your first chore trip now, your first, like, grabbing something from the grocery store sort of feeling, which just reemphasizes how fucked up it all is. But the way that presents Maki across all this is that the act of all this and watching Arata makes Maki realize how horrible he's been and that he's being a terrible person. And so he comes to the decision that morally what he has to do is undo the imprinting so that Maki will no longer simply be programmed to love him. Yes, this is a thing that they can do, which we find out halfway through the comic that Rowan had the ability to do this at any time. Again, Rowan should be fired. Yeah. And, like, in jail. Yeah, like, Rowan described the process as something that would be traumatizing, and we don't see the immediate fallout of the de-imprinting because there's going to be a period where the characters don't see each other afterward. And because our focal figure is Maki, not Arata, we don't really get to see Arata's coping. But frankly, even if the de-imprinting is traumatic, that's something you morally have to do as opposed to just keeping him in this duckling state. If you have a way of removing that imprinting, why not just remove it before you even turn him on any imprints on something? Yeah. And then you can literally just give him some clothes and, like, a basic education. Yeah, like... He fully is capable of having the imprinting mechanism undone and therefore essentially theoretically being free to... Just be a person. Yeah, just be a sentient being that isn't meaningfully different from a human being in any way. Just a person. You've got a person who, like, maybe doesn't need to eat, unclear, and presumably can't have children, and there you go, that's it. That's the difference from a human being. Also, so... Maki is the one who undoes the imprinting and, like, gives Arata the coast to say. And I have to say, based on the way this book ends and elements of this, I'm like, did he, though? I think that he did, largely because I just don't think that the way the rest of it plays out would make sense if he hadn't. It doesn't make sense, actually, the way that it does, but just in terms of the logic of the universe... I don't think events would make sense if it was, like, a fake imprinting. Essentially, when he raises the idea to Arata, Arata sort of, like, argues against it. And is just like, I love you not just because of the imprinting, you're being selfish. And essentially is like, if you go through with this and do this, that you're not giving me a choice to do, then after it's all over, you have to actually listen to me. To which... Maki consents to that, and we get this, frankly, again, chilling sequence of pages of the actually de-imprinting, where he essentially recites a series of wards as he's holding on to the crying Arata, rubbing away tears from his eyes, and it's just like a series of wards, warm, pond, name, Arata, blessing void and then there naturally is the title drop and on this final page of it or couple pages the final two pages we get this really close-up shot of 
wide-eyed errata at the moment of the final sequence word being said, tears in his eyes, open mouth, and then on the next page we see him like slumping, falling into Maki's chest as if the process has like knocked him unconscious. And then we skip forward six months in the future because this, I'll say, I think is just something that does not work well. Maki has decided that after de-imprinting, they need to spend six months apart so that Arata can have the opportunity to think without him around and decide for himself what he wants to do and, like, make sense of his feelings now that he's no longer imprinted. And it's mainly this time skip that makes me think that, yes, he must have done it, because otherwise I just don't think the six-month break makes any sense of why he would do it. That's fair. But also, Maki is a horrifying human being, so I just naturally don't trust him. Oh yeah, I also do not trust this man. It's like, the manga presents this story and his arc as him realizing that he's been doing these fucked up twisted things, and then deciding to set it right. But the thing is, that it doesn't set anything right, and, you know, I think- He should be in jail. He absolutely should be in jail. I think a lot of people would generally simply say and believe that there's no way to set this sort of behavior right, you know, that there would be no way to redeem this character. And I tend to think that way myself personally as well. And even if you were going to try and do like a redemption arc after this sort of horrible, sick, depraved, abusive behavior depicted throughout... Like, even if you're going to try and do that, you'd have to do so much fucking more than what actually gets shown here. Like, we only get, as you've mentioned, Maki's point of view. He's the narrator. Everything is from him. And I think you could do a different version of the story that was still his perspective if it leaned more into him as an unreliable narrator, a la the speaker in Lolita but that's not what this book is doing at all. Like, I think 100% that this book is presenting him as undergoing a moral change and redefining their relationship to be a happy one, which simply is not believable. You know, like, both in, like, this could never be a thing in a real-world context, and even just simply reading the book itself, it's just like, this character is not made up for jack shit. Yeah. Um, I, the end result essentially is after the six month gap, um, you know, and this is, this is, this is part five. So like part four is when he does, undoes the imprinting. So we get like a part of him, it, half the, fully half the story is him being this insanely horrible. Yeah, like over half even. Yeah, like part four is kind of where he starts to turn around. I don't know whether maybe it got cut short or something, but it is a very rushed character arc, if you could call it that. And so after the six months after he is trying to decide whether he's gonna go and see Arata, when Arata comes to see him because it's been the six months and Arata's like, hey, now we can get back together. And then they go home and have sex. Yeah, in the midst of this, there's also specifically a scene of him going back to Rin to the cemetery where he's buried, 
where he like at the very beginning like watched the funeral but didn't attend so we get this scene of him actually going to the gravestone for the first time and it's largely meant to be this whole you are not Arata, Arata is not you and I need to just let go of my lingering obsession and negative feelings towards you and say goodbye and hope that you have peace and it's meant to be a sort of like let go of the past just think about what you have now and let go of this toxic abusive outlook you had about your ex because it is also affecting you and your love in the present and it just isn't moving it doesn't work it you know it's like it's clear what the story is trying to do but as with so much of what we've talked about it simply isn't actually doing anything to sell this because just like you know like you could have negative feelings towards an ex you could have inadequacies insecurities born about by the whole brother replacement thing you know you could have all this stuff and i think it is interesting thematically but the point at which you are using another person and i'm just gonna call Arata a person because he is he is a sentient person regardless of if he is like genetically you know he yeah. likes nature there's no reason to program that into a sex robot therefore sentient yeah like he is a person the point at which you are raping a person you know regardless of if it is artificially created just a person the point at which you are doing all of this and some sort of sick like means of getting your negative feelings toward the other person out like he's effectively this entire time used Arata as an outlet for his rage and resentment toward Rin who he can't abuse in person because Rin is now dead and he's transferring the abuse onto Arata that is levels of evil that simply for my personal, I guess, just outlook, sense of humanity, that's just deep levels of evil that there's no coming back from. And again, even if this was going to try and be a story that was really about, like, how um, retribution and changing is always possible, it would have to do so much more than what it's doing, where it's literally just errata one day, or, again, um... Maki one day I keep mixing up names Maki just essentially is like oh he acts like he's sentient this is a person I've been bad but I hope he doesn't leave me and like Maki again used to work at this bureau that presumably dealt with a lot of situations kind of like this one this is he's literally doing things that he would have encountered other people doing before and presumably put a start to because that seems to be what the job of this organization is Speaking of which, he's working there again at the end. Yeah, he goes back to his old job. Fully insane. His brother, by the way, knows about some of what he did to Arata. And I guess let him be hired again, even though I... It's... They both should be in jail. This part towards the end, and some other parts throughout too, it seems really variable which characters and to what degree they think of humanoids as sentient and or equivalent to human beings. Because, like, there are fully parts where, like, they joke about, oh, is he making you fuck him too much, Arata? And it's just, like, 
if you actually thought this being was a person and equivalent to a human, then you would either A, never talk like this, or if you would, you know, you're still a monster. Like, the story and the people in it, even the people of this rehabilitation bureau, don't seem to consider Arata and other humanoids like him to be full true people, which I guess I won't even necessarily call that a con to the story because it could be a whole thing of just like, look at this protection agency not doing its job and in fact also inflicting harm. And I think there's like an angle you could take there in a story dealing with these things thematically, but it doesn't actually like really dive into that or have anything to say about it. It's, it firmly establishes that in this world these androids have been around long enough that there is now a government organization dedicated to their protection, which, like, that means at some point there was a actually their sentient, like, movement with the public, presumably. Because you don't just get a government organization like that to deal with emergent technology. We know how bad com uh, the government is at dealing with emergent technology. See their complete inability to deal with social media, for example. Yeah. So this was like, there was presumably some kind of public backlash that got this created to outrageous abuse situations, the only thing I can really think of. Yeah, and like, I wouldn't be opposed to this story, you know, having the whole government oversight bureau and having that bureau be evil and be aware of that, you know, and be saying something about just like government continuing of abuse. But as if so much of the rest of the story... It, it doesn't feel like the creator is viewing this as abuse. It brings up these concepts, but then I don't think either doesn't realize that it's bringing up these concepts or doesn't care enough about these concepts to dig into it, even when I'm like, well, this is very interesting material you're working with here. And my other big note about the end is uh, he still calls him Mr. Maki pretty consistently. It's not Maki. If it was Maki, I could maybe say, well, at least there's clearly a change of viewpoint on Arata's part. But it doesn't feel like it. He acts at him the exact same way he did when he was imprinted, before he was away from him for six months. It doesn't feel any different from his point of view at all in terms of his behavior. The character hasn't changed at all. And I think that's one of the most notable aspects of like what could have been versus what isn't here. Where, you know, the whole point of the six month gap is to give Arata time to think and process outside of this relationship. But then he comes back and is every bit as dependent on Maki as he was before. No new depths of character are added to give him anything other than, again, just being the duckling. He is simply the duckling who is happy to have returned home and is again following in his parent's shadow. Which even then you could do something theoretically with the idea of oh, it would be really hard to just snap one day, undo all of the horrible conditioning you've been put through, right? You know, there's like the sci-fi idea of imprinting and de-imprinting, but if you're a sentient being, you can't actually flip your feelings like that. You still remember feeling that way, which just makes you feel that way. Yeah, and essentially it ends with the two reuniting. They're really happy to see each other, it's meant to be a big, lovely thing. We get a shot of a bird coming down to the birdhouse that Maki helped Arata build, and just the symbol of, like, a creature coming home, not to a cage, but to where it wants to be. 
and the final splash page of the series proper is a shot of them both walking back towards Maki's mansion arm in arm. And that's the end of the story proper. We then get an epilogue as a lot of BL manga do where like there will be an extra bonus chapter that's essentially porn. And it carries a lot of the same thematic stuff of like this is probably the first time they're having sex since they reunited. And it's meant to be like a more loving tender sex scene than the earlier rape ones. Although again, as we said earlier, the way in which the bodies and the actor drawn are basically the same, both instances in terms of titillation, but this is meant to have a like happier, everything's good tone to it. And they quote unquote make love. You know, that's like how we're meant to take it. As we've established for just everything we've said, we don't think these characters can make love because they cannot have meaningful consensual love because it's all fucked. But essentially they quote unquote make love and after the morning after or later that day or whatever after sleeping post-coitus, um, Maki awakes to find the other side of the bed empty and goes out into the yard to find Arata looking up and smiling at the birdhouse and just watching the birds. And once again, we just end on this note of everything was fucked up before, but the imprinting is gone. And no, Arata's totally not trapped. He's choosing to be in this cage without walls. And it's meant to be a fully happy, uplifting romantic end. Is Arata going to school? Is he getting an education? Is there like some kind of setup to make it so that he is not presumably still financially dependent entirely on Maki's goodwill? With regard to financial stuff, not at all. No indication that he has any independence on that level or any like agency that would help him escape an abusive relationship. Earlier, we don't get like a lot of specific details about like his false implanting memories from before meeting. He knows how to speak. He maybe knows how to read? Unclear? My impression was that he was probably programmed to have the memories and the intelligence of like an average person up to that point. So like I assume that he remembers going to school and learning and that he's like programmed with the knowledge and just didn't actually go to school but has been like educated like such is like what I got theoretically. But then again, just everything about his actions is very childlike, again, independence and such. Does he have a social security number? Can he get a job? Or is this his only means of financial security? I am quite sure it is just this. Yeah, yeah, it's real fun. Yeah, so that basically wraps up our discussion of the plot. Despite all of the issues that we have addressed, I think I would say that this book fascinates me and the concepts it raises you know are thought-provoking enough and I think about it periodically enough since I first read it that I would say that I like the book but that doesn't mean that I think it is a polished successful or even fully coherent work because it's not and it's not one that I would recommend to someone blind you know like it would be hard for me to recommend this to someone who I didn't know was also just used to consuming 
whether literally like BL media of similar themes or at least just like, you know, someone else who doesn't mind consuming media that depicts some very morally depraved and unsettling things. You know, like this is something where I think there are going to be other people who get things out of this the way that I did, but it's not something I could ever blind recommend to someone. Yeah, I think it raises a lot of interesting concepts, but I've seen a lot of stuff that this is thematically doing done better in other places and like maybe less explicitly about sex but i mean i brought up blade runner earlier that is also a series about obscenely humanoid robots who are questioning their sense of self their memories what meaning can their lives have in this context and and like i mean that just to me is the obvious comparison partly because humanoids just seem to be functionally the same as replicants in that series and they like this is a flesh and blood thing too but yeah yeah like i see where you find it interesting i i don't like it <laughs> and i can't blame you for that at all <laughs> i will know another thing for it too is simply that i'm a ramaru zarya fan i enjoy a lot of her work i like her art style very much her aesthetic just the sheer starkness of it all i just tend to like her work and so I view this as sort of like the really thought-provoking but messy one of her books that I've read. I'd be interested in reading something that's like more polished and see a lot of it just feels like it doesn't necessarily fully understand what it's doing with this and the framing is what doesn't work for me, not what's happening. Yeah, I think this is probably a relatively earlier work of hers. She has some later longer form work that are like able to run for multiple volumes that but also seems like it would be helpful yeah i think her work has gotten better over time there's a manga she has that's another single volume called liquor and cigarettes that i would say is like my least favorite of her work and that it also has consent issues involved heavily but it doesn't have the same like thought-provoking sort of sci-fi stuff going on but then she also has the series coyote and birds of shangri-la where coyote like started out okay and then i think has just gotten better and better and then birds of shangri-la i think is legitimately great and i think that she's both improved over time and also with longer form i guess just like having more established career and being allowed more room to work i think her stuff has really blossomed the more she's been able to flesh stuff out and there are like other work she's had like i said that do deal with complicated and with not entirely healthy relationships but that i think she handles more matter of factly or like acknowledges that more and is like doing something with it to an extent that this one is not yeah i, I have nothing wrong with depicting a messy relationship i just like as long as you know it's messy. Yeah. You just know what you're doing, and then you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. So, listeners, I think if you've listened to this episode, hopefully you'll have a good sense of if this sounds like something that would be interesting to you or not. Even though it's not, like, a wholehearted recommendation, I think it was still, like, a sort of discussion of some things we really haven't discussed on the podcast yet was also part of why I picked it. Yeah, And that even if we don't glowingly love everything about something, I think the discussion can still be enjoyable. I brought Sins Past onto the pod. 
And I can't even call this retribution because I will unequivocally hold I like this better than Sins Past. Um, Ooh. Yeah. I might actually prefer Sins Past, but okay. <laughs> I couldn't blame you because, again, the seriousness of the subject matter. I think part of it, too, is like, I think I'm probably more used to reading romance manga that has these sorts of issues than you are probably like i'm more sort of yeah used to it but yeah if i was gonna get you to read something unequivocally bad i'd have to think about what to do for that but next time is your turn it is going to be the final week of spooktober yes yep. yes what are we reading next week uh, so next week, we are finishing off our horror-themed month with the King of Horror, Stephen King. We'll be reading the first two issues of the 2010 Marvel Dark Tower series, um, which are, it, it's adapting a small chunk of the flashback material from the fourth book in the book series, because the way they laid the series out was real weird. Um, King doesn't actually write it. It's Robin Firth with Peter David. Um, but the, the real draw is Jay Lee Art. Jay Lee Art will be fun. Jay Lee Art looks great. There you go. It, it, it's going to look great. And um, it's I'm stretching the definition of horror, but it's got Stephen King's name on it, so it counts. It's fine. If there's one thing we've done all month, it's stretched the theme and meaning of horror to fit what we feel like talking about. We've done exactly two things out of five that are like unequivocally, oh, that's horror. And even one of them is also like, well, Alien is theoretically horror, but it's also like a sci-fi action fight. Well, the first movie is a horror movie. Yeah. If we had read any Alien beyond that. It's just gonna be action horror at best. Um, Dark Tower is, uh, a multiversal fantasy, western, sci-fi, Lord of the Rings homage? Yeah. I feel like that's the simplest way to describe it, probably. Lots of King Arthur stuff. It's good. So tune in for that next week. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.